Quentin Tarantino has said that he could not imagine making a movie without this guest. And IMDb actually reflects that perfectly. He has served as Tarantino's AD for Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill 1 and 2, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, and his latest Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's been working as an assistant director for nearly three decades with 70 credits under his belt. Thank you very much to Mr. William Clark for taking the time to talk with us today. Hey, it's a pleasure, fellas. Thanks for inviting me. So let's jump right into it. 70 films in 27 years. Do you sleep or is this one of those multiplicity situations where there are three other operating clones of you going at one time? Well, yeah, I, I get plenty of rest. Uh, that's why I look so young. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been, you know, it's been a long time. It's been, we're approaching 30 years now that I've been, uh, making movies. So that gives me a lot of time. And fortunately, when I started out, I was able to catch that independent wave, you know, starting with uh, Pulp Fiction right behind your shoulder there. And, uh, it started a whole move, uh, in the early nineties through the whole nineties, where there was a lot of. Uh, independent pictures so some of them you know were five weeks long you know and uh and that gives you an opportunity there was one year where i had uh, five films that were at sundance <clears throat> so you know now it's spread out a little bit more i only get to make one two a year but uh to really up those numbers was the uh, the early years really was quite helpful there are so many independent filmmakers watching this right now uh that are like five films in Sundance, boy, that would be swell. But I could just get one. (laughs) That's amazing. Five films at one time. So you're like, you're at the festival making the rounds from one place to another. Well, I was working. I I wasn't at the festival at all. I was making the (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Hey. Um, So, and you, you moved to Los Angeles when you were 20. This is 1991. And you actually didn't go there for filmmaking. You went there just for something else in general. And then you saw the production of White Man Can't Jump. And that's what, what, what was it about that, that, that got you so, cause you were a broker before that, right? That was, it was actually, I was actually 24 in 1991, okay. but thank you for the extra couple of years and sure. uh, Jim Hemphill for the extra couple of years. Uh, but um, what, uh, what was happening was, um, you know, I just, I kind of, a couple of my college buddies, John and James, were moving out to California from New York. And I said, they were moving to Venice Beach. And I said, far out. I'm getting out of here. I, you know, I, my friends are criminals. I, I got to get out of here before I become one. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come get look for a three-bedroom instead of a two-bedroom. And yeah. so they did. So I was able to move right into a small house, you know, a little three-bedroom shack in Venice Beach. And I had a little money because I had done all right in the stock market. I just was normal. I wasn't churning and burning like the wolf of Wall Street. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I was I was doing okay. And plus, I was 24 years old. You know, beer wasn't very expensive, nor was pasta. So mm-hmm. I, I, I had no problems. So I didn't do anything for a couple of months. I just kind of played a lot of ping pong, drank beer, tried to learn how to surf. That didn't work out. Um, and uh, would hang out at a, a small bar. Uh, on the boardwalk there called the Venice Bistro, which looks right out onto the ocean. You know, they open up the windows and you sit, you know, on the boardwalk basically and, and you know, order a pitcher of moosehead. And the, the real reason I would go is um, 
you know, obviously the beach, but right next door used to be, it still says Cadillac Hotel, but I don't believe it's the Cadillac Hotel next to it anymore. And it was a big, bright pink hotel on Venice Beach. So, you know, groups of girls would come stay at the hotel. So I would go down to the Venice Bistro and, you know, it didn't take long before you get a posse of girls coming back to get their day started. Hello, oh, you live here. So I was going there all the time and I would read the one ad, see what I'm going to do next. I started interviewing for jobs. I actually was offered a job with the Los Angeles Clippers, which I thought I was going to take because I'm, I was just, I'm a big sports fan then and now. Uh, so I was, you know, being having a good sales background from being a broker, I figured I'd go, I'll go sell the group in uh, corporate tickets for, for the Clippers. Why not? That mm -hmm. sounds like a fun thing to do. And in this process, as I'm going through it, White Man Can't Jump came and turned the parking lot in front of that bar on the beach into basketball courts. And first I noticed because all the mobile homes were moved out. And, you know, and then they painted the asphalt and I, I knew it wasn't a government works project because it happened very fast. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was really quick. So I knew it wasn't uh, an improvement situation because nothing ever happens that fast through the bureaucracy. And I'm like, I got to figure out what the heck's going on. So I just keep going back. And then sure enough, the following week, in comes this circus, uh, you know, Ron Shelton's um, white men can't jump and there's Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes and you know there's this guy in the middle and, you know, all right everybody be quiet here we go and roll sound camera and action and you know and but Ron is sitting in the chair I'm like I recognize that guy he's the director that's far out. what the heck is that guy doing in the middle you know running the you know the you know might as well be the this ringmaster of the of the circus there and I was intrigued by that position and uh, so I would just go back and watch every day, just watch the living, breathing organism, uh, I like to call it, of the set, because there's so many things going on in the periphery, in the middle, you know, always, you know, and then you follow, you go see where the base camp is, and there's all sorts of shit going on there. And I was like, this is wild. I had no idea. I had no idea. First off, you know, I knew people had to make movies because that's the way it is. You know, people make things whatever it is but I never really put it together that I could be a person who could make movies it just never even occurred to me yeah. and um, I'm like you know I gotta you know these people are out here on the beach in shorts and t-shirts and they're getting this is a job you know this is they're getting paid to do this is unbelievable so I saw the guy with the walkie-talkie and his shorts and his t-shirts and he's telling the girl in the bikini went to rollerblade back and forth I just went up to him I said what do you do what, what is your job and he you know because I figured I can do that I, you know, I, I can tell him <laughs> and uh, he told me he's a production assistant and I had you do it and he explained to me oh my father was this and that, that. I'm like interesting interesting so I just started reading the Hollywood Reporter uh, you know I would just Every day, just get the Hollywood Reporter, see what was going on, start looking through the one ads. And I saw an advertisement for an internship, um, an office internship. And I figured, okay, let me, uh, let me call him up. And I got an interview, you know, with my resume, my letter of recommendation, because, you know, I left on my own terms in Boston from Smith Barney. And I had a very nice letter of recommendation from Joe Kringdon, my branch manager. And uh, that helped me get in the door into a lot of places. 
uh, about sales and in film, you know, just because look, this, this dude does all this. That's great. Okay, good. Yeah. And as luck would have it, I'm taking the bus from Venice to Studio City on the Monday of the uh, of the interview, and I see another advertisement with the same typeface, same phone number, and they're looking for a product placement person. Now, this was relatively new. You know, ET was only eight, ten years earlier, and you know the Reese's Pieces and all mm-hmm. that. So there wasn't really all of these boutique companies that are specializing, and now it's gone even into the studios that have their own departments for product placement into films, you know, cars and all that jazz. And, uh, and I went into the interview, I, and I asked, is this your ad as well? And they said, yes, they were offering product placement first in $500 a week. And they said, yes. I said, I'll tell you what, I, you know, I just got out of Boston where I'm asking people for $10,000 over the phone for a minimum of investment. I had over a million dollars under management. I will get product for your movie. I will do this job. And I'll do it for free. You can keep your $500 in exchange for an internship on the set, this office internship, and then a job, an internship on the set. All for free. You don't have to pay me anything. I just need the experience and I'll do all these things. I'll take care. And they're like, well, this seems like a pretty good deal. And they <laughs> took the deal. They yeah. took the deal. And that, that was a, a picture called Frozen Assets, a Shelley Long Corbin Burnson uh, comedy about uh, a sperm bank. Corbin Burnson thinks he's going to manage a bank. It turns out to be Shelley Long's a doctor at a sperm bank. They fall in love. High jinks ensue. Larry Miller was it was, and I loved it. I had such a great time. I you know it was up in Portland. I drove up to Portland on myself. My buddy Dudley was up there renovating houses. We stayed in a big empty Victorian house that was the next to be renovated. No furniture and. <laughs> And I had the time of my life, you know, for that five, six weeks of making that film. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's go ahead and give this a try. Let's see what we, we can do. And that's when I started taking every Tuesday, the Hollywood Reporter would come out with the weekly production listings. And I would break them down into sections of the Thomas Guide for anybody, old Los Angelinos, <laughs> who know, we used to have to use maps. And uh, the Thomas Guide was, uh, you know, like a, inch and a half thick map of all of Los Angeles. And I would break it into sections of the Thomas Guide and show up at each of these places with a resume and a smile. I learned how to break into Paramount, through the mail room, I would get into Paramount, uh, at Warner Brothers, I would go buy a taco for a dollar at the Taco Bell, wait for a group of people to walk out of gate five, they'd go buy their tacos, they'd walk back towards gate five, I'd just kind of you know, a couple of steps behind him, getting closer and closer as we got to the gate, you know, and I flashed my Ace Ventura card. Uh, you know, by the time they got to me, the seventh day first, they didn't look anymore. This was all nine, <laughs> pre, pre-9-11. Yeah. Right? I, I, I quickly eat the taco and then start going all the bungalows. And, you know, and it was, uh, that's, that's, uh, I, and I got into Disney and that's how I got Sister Act, which was the second uh, movie that I was uh, lucky enough to work on and I would just make a mission that I would take my Tuesdays plan my course for the rest of the week and the following Monday and then every day make a minimum of showing up at 10 places a day with a resume and a smile until somebody would give me a job and that that I did that for about a year year and a half do you think that approach would still work today uh you know 
obviously you're not going to be able to break into the lots today. You know, that you're not going to be, be able to sneak into any of the lots today. You know, it, the post 9-11 world is much safer, much more secure in that sense. Uh, but, the, you know, I think it would work into to a certain, you know, now COVID has a whole other element to that too, mm -hmm. but this will pass. And But I do think, you know, there are a lot of independent films that still, you know, just have an office off the third street promenade or have an office on uh, on Wilshire, you know, mid Wilshire, you know, there's, there's companies out there and you can get them because when I ran out of places that uh, from the weekly production reports, because, you know, you run out of places to go. Uh, I started to, I uh, would go to the library and photocopy against the law because <laughs> it, you're not supposed to do this, but you would photocopy the uh, Hollywood production listing, uh, the Hollywood directory which just had listings of all production companies. I just started going to production companies. Hey, if you got anything coming up, I'll do anything, you know? And so I did little things too. I, you know, I went and scouted locations for one infomercial guy, you know, never got paid, but, you know, I just started, it just, you know, even if, I don't know many of those people anymore, but, you know, it's one now, actually, I, I, that's, uh, I went into a company called Smart Egg, and um, there was a young lady behind the desk who was completely surprised. It was one room in another office and she just had her little desk. Uh, her name was Shelly Strong and she's now the uh, uh, VP of uh, production at uh, DreamWorks. Mm. So, you know, there are some that right. uh, I uh, have made it through, but most of the people that I met, you know, 30 years ago, all out here living, trying to find that, that dream, you know, have, open a coffee shop in Independence or, you know, dealing art in Ohio, you know, all sorts of different things. It's hard. It's, it's a tough, it's tough. It's tough to break in. Right. But once you get there, it's, it's, it's a thrill. Now, I was going to say the story goes, it was by accident, literally, that you wound up working with Quentin Tarantino for the first time on Pulp Fiction. Uh, can you talk to us about that, how that happened and what was that like? It was a complete accident. I had just finished a, a, a Five, if it was $500,000, it was a lot movie uh, in Provincetown, uh, Massachusetts called um, Unconditional Love. And um, you know, I was the first AD on that. So I was pretty excited. I'd only been in the business for two years, two, three years. And there I was, you know, being first on this movie. I had seconded about five, six movies, PA'd only on three, was second, second on one. So it was all, you know, once, it, once I got my traction, it really started to move quickly you know, from one to another. And I was at a, a, a dinner party for a, a friend of mine, Eric Davies, who was having first, he was the first AD, was having a little birthday get together. And Paul Hellerman, I happened to be sitting, there's only six, seven people at the, at, at, uh, at the party, at the dinner. And Paul Hellerman, who I happened to sit next to, was the line producer on Pulp Fiction. And he kind of leans over to me, and Eric tells me you're a pretty good AD. Well, I like to think so. And thank you. I'll thank him for that. And he's like, well, look, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just learned we're a week into our movie, our little movie, he called it. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, you know, it was a little movie. It was a little movie that could. Um, yeah. We're a week into our little movie and our second, second assistant director, I learned, got into a car accident on the way home. Uh, last night and he's unable to work would you be able to come in on Monday and be willing to meet with our first and second AD and you know see if it's a fit maybe you can help me out for a couple of weeks in his absence 
I'm like, you know, Paul, I'm really kind of a first AD next <laughs> But if it's going to help you and your friend of ours, I'll come on down. And, uh, and, and so I did. I showed up on that following Monday. They were junkyard day. We were at that junkyard. Um, the wolf with the wolf and, uh, and Sam and, and John and uh, Brigitte. And um, it was just, you could feel you can feel the electricity. It was I had been on several sets. You know, I mentioned uh, Sister Act, and I had done a picture called Twenty Bucks, and I had done a, a, a slew of, of smaller independent films. But this, you know, this was also a small independent film, bigger than those, but still a small independent film. But you could feel the electricity. You could feel the electricity coming from the twenty-seven-year-old director running around laughing and having a good time, mm. uh, and. In, in totally in his element and you can see it immediately and you just felt it from you know even the cast and, and it continued you know because nobody was there to break the bank you know nobody was there getting you know this was not the big payday you mm -hmm. know movie that they that they were looking for everybody was there because this was a very interesting and different project and reservoir dogs which i did not know at the time was really a kind of a breakthrough heist film mm -hmm. where you never saw the heist yeah. So people were very intrigued by all of this. So it really had a very different feel than many things I was on. And I and I hit it off with Sam Mahoney, the first AD, and Kelly Kieran, the second AD. And they said, yeah, can you come tomorrow? You know, call time 7 a.m. I said, I'll be there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I became the second second AD on Pulp Fiction for two weeks until John Hyde Jr., the, uh, the man who was... Uh, you know, the young man at the time who was uh, injured in the car accident was able to return. And he came back and um, it was over uh, Labor Day. If I, in September's Labor Day, right? Labor Day, yeah. It was over the Labor Day weekend that uh, was my last, that Friday was my last day. And unbeknownst to me, um, over that Labor Day weekend, Andre Secula, the, uh, the cameraman, Got into a car accident with his girlfriend in New Mexico. How uh, you know he drove off a cliff, he broke his leg, and he was hospitalized. And so they, unbeknownst to me, again that Tuesday, you know Monday was off of the holiday. That Tuesday, they took off, they they shut down, and um, I got a call on that Tuesday and asking me to come in the next day to be the second AD because Kelly Kiernan was double timing. She was also the set medic. They sent her out to New Mexico to forget the prognosis and to assist with Andre's um, rapid return to uh, Los Angeles. And they asked me to be the second AD for the next couple of days while Kelly went and did that. I'm like, great. And Kelly was an experienced second AD, so she was getting paid pretty well. And so I was happy. For two days, I had made more money than I had made since I was a broker, which was two and a half years ago. So I, so, uh, you know, me and my roommate Poodle went out that night to celebrate that I had made a couple extra dollars being the second AD on Pulp Fiction for two days. And that was that Friday. I got a call at seven o'clock in the morning, like, oh my God, what the heck is going on? And it was Kelly, where are you? I'm like, yesterday was my last day again. What do you mean, where am I? He's like, I know, I'm just, come on, come on down here, Paul. Paul, uh, Paul would like to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, I, I need an hour. <laughs> that, 
at that age at 26 27 that's all you need you know now mm. i need three weeks now i need three weeks <laughs> after a night like that yeah. um <laughs> and uh, so i went down and talked to paul while they you know they were shooting on stage in culver city and paul explained that because we went down the one day we have to combine three days into two and one of the days is going to require two company moves from culver city you know, we have to shoot a scene in Culver City at the stages, a scene in the Hollywood Hills, you know, with Ving and uh, Uma on the phone, you know, Ving on the mm -hmm. phone out by the pool. And we have to shoot a scene downtown with uh, John and uh, Sam walking through the bowels after Butch, after Bruce had already escaped, you know, with uh, Paul Calderon. Uh, you know, answered, he's not here, you know. And uh, nobody was sure exactly how to do it. So Paul asked me if I would production manage that day. He's like, you take, you tell me what you need and we'll make it happen. But I need you to make this day happen. I got to worry about the rest of the movie. You worry about this, this day and I'm not going to think about it. You tell me how we're going to do that day. And, you know, I, there were a couple of people, uh, you know, the transportation corps, I remember laughing at me every day. He's like, oh, you're getting set up. Oh, you're getting set up. There's no way oh, you're getting a 16 hour day. And everybody was really, pulling up their bootstraps ready for that day to be a very long day and we just you know I had all the ducks in a row I got a little lucky because for whatever reason um, you know this is even before Nextel's you know this is certainly before cell phones uh, I was able to communicate with the set from Culver City to the Hollywood Hills which is about 10 miles away via the walkie-talkie oh, nice. I, I still I still don't know how that was possible but on that day, it was possible. And I was able to communicate with them. And I had the vans all labeled. I had nobody going to, you know, all three locations except for, you know, Quentin, Andre, you know, Marty, the script supervisor, you know, just a couple of people. But I, there was no, everything was labeled. Everything was listed. Every van, who was supposed to be in every van. There was, everything was, and it worked like clockwork. And we finished in under 12 hours. It was one of our shortest days. And you know, at the end of the day, Lawrence Bender and, uh, and uh, Paul Hellerman called me back into the office and they're like, look, we can't pay you the second AD rate like we've been paying you for the two weeks, these past week and a half, but we'd like you to stay. You know, we got Jackrabbit Slims coming up and, you know, we don't know what we'll call you, but would you just stay for the rest of the movie? And I'm like, yes, because we were having a great time too. I mean, yeah. you know, you know, we're going out every Friday night, you know, as I'm saying, Quentin was 27. Most of the crew was young, you know, and it was just really a, a magical, magical experience. So I was happy to stay for the remainder of the show. And, um, and, you know, and towards the end, we had a, you know, run two units at some time. So I was first thing, you know, a, it wasn't a second unit because Quentin would go back and forth. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he was, he, there's no, nobody directs anything except for Quentin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even Phil Lamar's head exploding in the back of the car. So I set it up. I call Quentin over. We shoot it. And yeah, that was great. I love it. Okay. And then back to Chris Walken, <laughs> you know, back to Chris Walken in the, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the watch story. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. And, uh, and it, it just was really a wonderful, wonderful experience. And then we had the rap party at Jack Rabbit Slims, and I got to dance with Kelly Preston. Uh, and, um, you know, it was just, I, I smoked weed with Chris Walken. 
just mind blowing things, you know, that yeah. uh, really, yeah, that's really, really were just everything. <laughs> yes. really just wonderful. And, um, you know, a couple of years go by, I continue working and now I had Pulp Fiction on my resume, which people had heard of, even though it hadn't completely come out, but they, you know, everybody knew about it. Um, mm. And so I was getting, you know, better movies just from that. And, yeah. you know, a couple of years go by and Paul Hellerman calls me again and says, hey, Quentin wants to talk to you. Uh, I'm like, okay, about what? What do I do? Am I everything okay? And it was for Jackie Brown. And, uh, and so, you know, there I am in the business for five and a half years and I'm the first AD on Jackie Brown. And that was uh, an experience, you know, me just have to, I remember rapping Bob De Niro we were shooting, uh, the last scene he shot was with Simone in the house. Oh, baby, 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 love. Seriously, okay. yeah, the rocking. <laughs> that's my. That's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie, just because like, he is rocking so f just manically. Just Something's going on there. Yeah, it tickled me. That's great. It, it was really a joy to watch. Just, you know, just. It was, you know, watching him and Sam work together and Bridget, too. You know, these people are different people. They're, they're you know, Bridget, Sam, and, and uh, Bob. And then, you know, the camera turns on and, and De Niro, you know, his, uh, action and his posture change. You know, everything changes, you know, and, and all of a sudden he, he's, he's the character. He's no longer Robert De Niro. I mean, he really becomes it. It was really an exciting thing for me to be able to watch all that and so that we wrap that scene we wrap I just and that's a wrap on Bob De Niro for the movie thank you very much and you know I'm a huge Godfather fan one of you know, my favorite movies even before you know since I was a little boy because you know my my mother grew up in that neighborhood so I, I felt a big connection to that movie as, as a kid I you know even before I became such a lover of film that I am now that was my favorite movie and I can, I'm just standing on the driveway of this house in Compton thinking, I can't believe I just wrapped Bob De Niro for the movie. I can't believe that just came out of my mouth to him. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he thanked me, you know, and, and there, and his driver pulls up, you know, it's the, it's six, five o'clock in the morning, you know, it's still dark, the moon is full. I remember seeing the moon, looking at the moon, you know, just like, oh my God, what is happening? And his driver pulls up and he goes, Bill, uh, Bob would like to invite you back to his trailer for a toast. All right, so I went back to, and Quentin was already in there, and uh, and and Bender and me, uh, Quentin, uh, Lawrence, and and De Niro did shots till like nine o'clock in the morning, nice. talking about movies, yes. talking about going to the movies. You know, it was it was, it was just it was great. Wow, yeah, that's got to be surreal to yeah. grow up watching yeah. somebody and idolizing somebody, and now your your coworkers having a drink after work casually. Yeah, it, would, it didn't turn out to be too casual. It was just, <laughs> <laughs> too bad oh. there wasn't an Uber. Oh, there you go. That was the early journey with Quentin, and it was uh, it was it was a magical experience, and still is, quite frankly. It that lives up to what I would expect that situation to be like, like that, like a, a fantasy almost coming, a, a dream coming true. That's yeah, that's a perfect story. Now, I, I read in an interview with you that 
Uma Thurman prefers that you are the one to get her to set because she likes the way you wake her up. So how, what, how does Uma Thurman like to be awakened? Well, that's kind of, it kind of what it was. It was on Pulp Fiction, you know, and I had been there for a while and she kind of liked me. You know, she took it, she thought I was funny and, and cute. And, and yeah, she was only 23 years old at that time. You got to keep in mind, it, you know, it wasn't, but she was just coming out of, uh, she had been married to Gary Oldman, I believe. And they, you know, so she was, there was a little, she was, she was, it was difficult. You know, she had a, she's trying to carry this movie and she's only 23 years old. I mean, I really respect the hell out of her. That's a lot of weight to carry as a very young person. And she did it. And so she, she would, she would like to rest as much as she could in between takes and between setups and between scenes. And um, she just, uh, she just requested that I would be, you know, if she's taking a nap that I would wake her up. And I don't know why. I, I still don't know why. I've never asked her. Um, <laughs> and I would just, you know, gently knock on Uma, Uma. And, you know, and then I'd go in, she'd walk into the trail and I'd just touch her foot. Uma, Uma, we're going to need you in 20 minutes. She said, oh, Bill, okay, okay. And then I'd go out of the uh, trailer and breathe again because <laughs> she was stunning. I mean, what a, what, you know, what a, uh, you know, a goddess, really, a statue, statuesque goddess. Just... That's why I was curious, just just on the off chance I'm ever in the situation where I need to wake Uma Therma up, I just wanted to be completely prepared for that. There you go. <laughs> one, thing, one, one thing I do suggest is you do take a second before you do wake her up, look at what you're about to do, and thank God that he put you on this earth to be in this moment in time, because it was really... <laughs> It was it was it was special too because I you know I I like you know most of America was head over heels in love with her mm-hmm. and you know and Quentin you know all of us everybody was yes. everybody was. Yeah. yeah it had to have been amazing now the Tarantino Clark partnership continued three years later with Jackie Brown as you brought up earlier now this seemed like a much more scaled back production as opposed to when you were with him in Pulp Fiction so let me ask you this as an AD could you discuss how the different levels of the sets and everything from that nature. I don't know if it was really a, a scale back. Uh, and I, I, what I, what I would say is, what Quentin wanted was different from Jackie Brown than from what he wanted. You know, being such an astute filmmaker, he he, he wanted, um, he wanted to feel trapped. You know, so where we built, you know, Jackrabbit's limbs, and we, you know, we wanted to feel the expanse of of the south bay and 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 all of los angeles and pulp fiction he wanted to feel the the tightness of you know pam greer's apartment jackie brown's apartment um you know the he wanted it to be very practical and he also because of the uh resounding success i mean the amazing success of pulp fiction did not want to become the irresponsible diva filmmaker mm-hmm. so he want he wanted to be constricted not only for the characters and for the for the feel of the picture but for his own mental well-being and prog- and progression as a director and so i you just i just embraced it i you know whatever i can do to help you and and you know that's what we did we you know the sets were all practical 
there was, I can't think, we shot the airplane on stage, you know, Cabo Air was uh, the inside the airplane was the only thing that was really on stage that I can recall. You know, we shot at the airport, we shot at, you know, Jackie Brown's house in the, in the South Bay, you know, Max Cherry's office was actually a bail bonds office in, in uh, Hawthorne, you know, the Kuka, uh, the Cockatoo Inn was was a real place that sadly isn't there anymore, but it it was legit. It was it was a real place, and he really wanted to uh, feel that that the tightness of you know Jackie Brown being caught in between the law and the and the mob, you know, and and yeah. and you, he wanted to that feeling to be in the film, and I think we succeeded. And it, you know, you, you feel those tight places. You feel the the crampness. I think that's your is your favorite. Oh, it is my it's my it's my it's not just my favorite Tarantino film. This is one of my top five films of all time. Okay. And and I, I, we to what you just said there. We talked about this when we entered, we did Jackie Brown um, last season. We did Jackie Brown, and when we talked about it, one of the things that we came to conclusion on, like he was an ultimate. Part, Pulp Fiction fan, and I was the ultimate Jackie Brown fan. And when we talked about it, one thing things he came around on was, you know what, he he had a new, a, a, should I say, a love for Jackie Brown now because w what you just said of how restricted Tarantino was in the making of it. There were no mass explosions. There was no just nothing crazy going on. It was all in the dialogue and the action and th of the actors, and you felt the story. So I, you guys definitely succeeded for, from that. Listen, lifelong fan. I even told him on one of our Friday night parties, which is, was, you know, we're getting a little older now, so we're a little, <laughs> we settled down a bit. But in Jackie Brown days, you know, I was 30, he was 32, 33 or something. So one of the most important jobs for the location manager was finding the place where we would party on Friday night, where as soon as we wrap, where are we going? And, you know, sometimes we wrap two or three o'clock in the morning. So the location manager has to open it up has to find a place that's going to open so we can come in and, and, uh, and, you know, do what we do. And, um, and at one of these uh, events, I, I remember uh, talking to him quite, he, he, he pulled me aside actually first and was very gracious and thanking me. You know, he, he, he told me he had never really known what a first AD had done, even though he had done two movies and now he knows what a first AD does. And I was like, well, that's very nice of you to say, thank you. And I said, and I told him back, I'm like, you know, I'm really impressed by your courage. I mean, you're coming off a, a, a pop culture classic. I don't know if I knew that at the time, but a, a, a monstrous pop culture success mm -hmm. um, in Pulp Fiction. And you're taking a, and you're moving it into a middle-aged love story by Elmore Leonard, which is, you know, that's, that takes some fucking mad, you know, that, that's, that's a gutsy decision on your part. And I, I, I applaud your courage and I'm excited to be able to help you. And that's exactly what it was. So that's why it never got the, you know, everybody's the Pulp Fiction fan. I'm happy to hear that you're in your top five is Jackie Brown, because I agree. I think it is a masterful film. I think it's really, I, I know it, it's really well done. And, but, you know, you add in the music and, and the tone we, and the feeling. We're on 110th Street. <laughs> yeah, I, I fall into the, I, I appreciate Jackie Brown for the classic, for it is masterful filmmaking, masterful storytelling. The pacing is, is perfect. But I, I fall into the Pulp Fiction camp 
mainly because just when I want to watch something, I want uh, when I want to be purely entertained. Pulp Fiction does it for me every time. With oh, yeah, the, it's got an adrenaline needle to the heart. It'll do that every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, and, and it's nice you don't have to start at the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It's yeah, it works well for me. <laughs> so, um, shut that c- mouth, or I'll come over there and c- start her head. This is one of the best lines to one of the best openings in any movie. You worked on Way the Gun, and um, if so, I, this this is not a Tarantino film, but if somebody were to tell me that Tarantino made this movie, I would believe it easily. And I was wondering, as someone that's worked with Tarantino so much, when you were working on this, did you see similarities there, or like uh, inspiration? Well, certainly. I mean, you know, uh, that's Chris McQuarrie was uh, the director and writer uh, of that piece, and um, you know, he's now Mister uh, Mister Mission Impossible, and uh, and you know, he had already won his Oscar for uh, unusual uh, unusual suspects, usual suspects. So. Um, you know, there was a similarity right there for the, with their love of the underworld. And so, yes, I recognize that parallel. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, that's kind of why I got the job because of my connection to Ted, because obviously he was a fan of another writer director, like he was at that time trying to be, he was his first, it was his first foray into uh, directing. He had won an Oscar for writing. It, it's, it was an interesting me. He admired it, wanted it, but didn't want to be too close to it because he wanted to establish his own identity as well. And, and what I really love about The Way of the Gun, which uh, I, I see is getting a little bit of uh, cult recognition these days, you know, whereas Out of the Box really didn't come out with gangbusters, is there is no redeemable character in that whole movie. The, the only person who is innocent is the unborn baby and yeah. is born right at the end of the movie. That's the only, only innocent player of anybody, Parker, Landau, you know, Jeffrey Lewis, who was amazing. You know, every, you know, Juliet Lewis was great. You know, James Caan was a great bad guy. I mean, you know, all of, there was no good guys, you know, there was no good, there was no, oh, I like that for even Sarah Silverman. was. In, I think he said that to Sarah Silverman. Yeah. Get your f-ing ass off the f- car yeah oh, yeah yeah no it's get off the car with your f-ing ass it was very funny the way she worded that and then the way she looks at her boyfriend after he says that line back to her he looks at her boyfriend like yeah you want to do the man dance was that do, do you remember shooting that part was that uh, i'm just curious because i love that moment so much like i i'm curious how that came to be that what like how much of it was on the page and how much just kind of came out organically when they started working on the scene an interesting thing about that uh about that it was on the page that that you know there was a little bit of riffing i believe but more you know more from sarah Silverman. that's just her thing a little bit but uh most of it was really on the page you know the stuff that stayed was on the page but the interesting thing about that is the real that's the first scene of the movie uh, but what, what had been when we read the script was a collection of circumstances with parker and lambo you know ryan Philippi and benicio del toro um being pricks in quick cuts in different places 
And, you know, we'd kind of put these in the schedule and there was thing, you know, it involved explosions, it involved, you know, fights, it involved all this stuff, but they're all like one eighth of a page. And there was plenty of other material to shoot over the course of the 50 days that we had to do it in Salt Lake City. And one of my, you know, one of my favorite camera, and it was, uh, 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 is a man named Dick Pope. And he was the cameraman on uh, The Way of the Gun. And we're about to go out on the tech scout. And he comes into my office and he's distressed. And I'm like, what, what's, I call him the pontiff. Pontiff, what's, what's the matter? What, what's, what's the problem? What's going on? He's like, you know, I really feel great about everything, but it was called the trailer, you know, which was these collection of scenes at the beginning of the movie. I really don't know how to achieve the trailer. I, you know, everything you put together with the schedule, I love the the flow, the the idea. I think we've got time. You know, this will be hard. This will be great. But I'm not worried about anything except for the trailer, and I and I don't know what to do about it. I'm like, well. I have that same feeling. I, you know, these are one eighth of a page and we're sticking it, you know, in the beginning of the brothel where we have big shootout, you know, uh, you know, in the middle of the day, you know, it, it, these just these little pieces that are stuck into days and they don't really belong there. But for, you know, things that take effort, you know, when you're going to blow up a car, you can't just say, okay, blow, blow we're going to run over here and blow it up now. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta try to keep people safe. <laughs> it's all part of the process. And, um, and of course you got to light it and you got to, you know, do it all properly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes get more cameras and whatnot. And so, uh, I said, okay, well, let's get Kenny Koken and we'll tell Kenny and then let's get Chris and we'll tell Chris, you know, and everybody's, I remember everybody was actually even waiting out in the bus for us to leave on the tax scout. And Chris comes on into, we remember we had it in my little office, no windows in Salt Lake and, um, and me and, and, and the pontiff, Dick Pope, tell Chris, look, we feel great. I tell you, you know, I basically repeat what Dick said, but I'm saying it now to Chris. That's just how it works sometimes. And, uh, and Chris goes, oh, well, I don't really need that. I don't like, you know, I wrote that, to, I wrote that so I could sell the <laughs> thing. Let's get rid of it. You know, it's great to start right there in the alley with these guys outside the club. And that's you know, so we just wiped it off the tech scout, took it off the schedule, and that was the beginning. Now there's the new beginning of the movie. It was right there. Yeah, that was that was an interesting thing, and it was an important lesson for me. You know, this is 2000. I guess we shot this. It was an important lesson for me. You know, it, it, to express your concerns. You know, don't just swallow it and and say it's going to be everything's going to be fine. You know, if you have a concern, express the concern. Talk about it. I mean, the solution is not always going to be, oh, we don't need it, but, you know, we will work out a solution. We will find the solution. We will, we will solve the problems together. Some, some like, actor up and coming that was, that was auditioned and got cast for scene 1B <laughs> had already called everybody, I mean, I'm going to be in this scene with Benicio. I've been pumping out. I'm out there. This is what we talked about, man. It was what we fought for. And then it all comes down to the writing of Throw it out. I just wanted that for the trailer. Oh, man. <laughs> that is, that's amazing. I, I, I remember one was blowing up a, a car. Another one was beating up a guy in a wheelchair. Uh, you know, it was just it was just these silly little things to show that these two guys are not really nice people. Yeah. And 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 Chris was, you know, to his credit was like, I would prefer that we learn that they're not nice people. And if we learn it in that first scene with 
you know the 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 quote you just uh, you just you remember so well. Oh, well, and he um, he pushes beneath he, he pushes the boyfriend out of the way to punch the girl. Like I'm like, okay, this is this, this is this you're... is the guy we're following. All right, let's go. Right. So so we we quickly learned that uh, we're we're dealing with the the true deplorables. Yeah. <laughs> Very entertaining from beginning to end, though they were great. In 2002, you worked on Rules of Attraction, and this is another great film. I remember seeing it in theaters and being really impressed by, like, they they took innovative approaches to filmmaking where they didn't have to. They just went above and beyond to, like, almost show off. Like, be, like it was, uh, I'm thinking specifically of, like, they were kind of doing Tenet before Tenet did Tenet. They would reverse through a whole scene, follow a character, and then until it got to a different character, and then go back in forward motion and follow that character through a different part, a different part of the scene, a different part wow. of the location. Um, and then there was this really cool, like it follows uh, Shannon Sossman and James Vanderbeek in a split screen that ends up meeting perfectly in a hallway and coming together, follow them through their morning until they meet in the hallway, and. Uh, when I saw that you worked on that, my first thought was to ask, how, how was something like that mapped out? Uh, well, that was motion control. You know, that was uh, computer-generated uh, movement with the camera to get them into the same place because we had to shoot one at a time because it becomes the same frame. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we would shoot one and the actor would be there kind one side would be there kind of waiting, take that last step in as we follow that person in. And then motion control, we do the same thing the other side. So it's exactly the same to get together. And then you can blend them pretty easily. Uh, it was, you know, the, the most challenging part was the programming of the, you know, rehearsing and then programming. Because that, especially 2002, I guess you told me already, you know, the, it, there was, there, you know, there, things have changed considerably. That would be a lot easier right now. But it was yeah. a bit of a time-consuming, you know, first rehearsal and then setting the track and making sure it was all locked and marked and then setting all the programming points with the, you know, with the uh, visual effects guys to nail it down and then doing the one side, making sure it was perfect, doing the other side, making sure it was perfect, and then morphing it together with the, uh, you know, with, which is now, you know, plebeian uh, equipment that you have on the set. You know, now you can edit the movie on the set. But back then, you know, we had a we had to bring a whole bunch of things and, you know, we had to use a little bit of imagination and a little bit of hope uh, to, to make it all jive perfectly. But yeah, that was, that was an effort. Awesome. The, 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 the scene in reverse when you're, when it, when it was like the party scene where it goes, you pretty much get everybody's introduction that, I mean, something like that has to be a nightmare for continuity, and there has to be so much care taken to. There's there's so many supporting actors in place, and in your like, and a lot of the times you can cheat things, but when you're, I mean, you're exploring the whole space through different perspectives mm -hmm. in the course of one scene. That just had to be insane to put together. It was it was it was all about the continuity. It was making sure you know we're doing shooting different sections of the party and then going back to different sections of the party. You know we shot it all forward and ran it reverse, but we're still going to different sections. I mean Kate Bosworth at the pool table. You mm -hmm. have to help me because I haven't seen some of these movies in a very long time. Uh, we had uh, 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 you know Vanderbeek wandering around. We had. Uh, 
Shannon Sossman. In another part, we had the uh, Ian up uh, in the up in the room upstairs. You know, we're going to all of these different places, so we just had to rehearse with the background very carefully, so all of that would be the same. All of their moves movements would be the same every time. You know, there was you know you can you you can get away with a lot with background, but when you're going back through, when you're coming through and then going back down to a different place than you were before, it, you know, it's really important that, that all of the background specialists hit their marks. And we had a great bunch of back, you know, it was a great bunch of background. And oddly enough, this was the end of the world party, if I remember correctly, it was the end of the world party. And um, we had shot that over the course of three days. And the third day was September 11th, 2001. Oh, wow. uh, so uh, we, fortunately, it had gone so well the first two days that you know when we showed up on September 11th 2001 here in Los Angeles you know, some people didn't come that day some people didn't didn't show up for work that day and uh, and we it was you know really important to me and uh, Jeremiah Samuels the, the the line producer and 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 Roger uh, to a lesser extent because you know it's his baby and the baby comes first you know even uh, when the world has changed dramatically overnight um we wanted to get everybody back home with their families and uh and we, fortunately those rehearsals and the backgrounds were so good that we were ahead from the first two days that we were able to finish up the party make it good uh you know miss some of the missing people you know you know dress other people up similar we had a you know, we had we had to fudge some stuff, and and get people back to their to their families as, as quickly. We think we shot for like eight eight nine hours that day, which, you know, in movie terms is like a half day. Yeah. So uh, that that was that was a really, you know, I, I'll always think uh, I'll always put the two together because my daughter was uh, that was her due day too. That was also oh, the wow. day she was supposed to be born. Wow, it is tragically. Tragically poetic that that you're shooting the end of the world party on the during the time that that happens. It was all I'm about to bust out right now. And even with those background actors, I think I think he'll know where I'm coming from with this. There are no small parts, yeah. no small parts. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's parts important. Now, let me ask you this: In 2002 and 2003, for eight months, you worked on Kill Bill Volume One and Two. Those were shot at the same time, right? Continued. We shot it as if it was one movie. We went into it thinking it was one movie. What was it like putting that together? Like, because the, the the scale of that was so huge. It's four. It's essentially a four-hour film with a huge cast. And we, uh, I read that uh, I saw in an interview both you and Quentin Tarantino described it as a difficult shoot. So I was wondering, like, like that was was it was it obvious that that this was another level when you were working on it? Well, yeah, you know, first, uh, you know, the first tip off was you know just the cast, obviously, and then it was the first time we were working with uh, Bob Richardson, who I think was Oscar Richardson only the second at the time. He had only won two Oscars maybe at that time, so. Uh, you know, Andre Secula was great, and Guillermo Navarro went on to win his own Oscar anyway. He was great, too. But now we got Bob uh, Diablo Blanco Richardson 
uh, you know, the, the people who have worked with him, uh, I hope uh, affectionately, because I say it affectionately, because Bob is one of my favorite people on the planet, uh, but, um, you know, the white devil. And uh, that was going to raise the bar right there, because we are now dealing with an uncompromising uncomp cameraman, mm -hmm. an uncompromising director. And we're in four countries with, you know, multiple, many different languages, many different stars from many different cultures. And, uh, and it was, uh, it was, it, it was a challenge and it was exciting. It was, it was exciting. And it was a marathon too, because we shot it for 154 days. Yeah, you know, so, wow. what, what was the, what was the most challenging part? Would you say? uh just getting our our feet on the ground really i i would say was was the most challenging thing just figuring out how we were going to do it you know if, uh, i i, I noticed you guys like the story so I'll, I'll share another one with you when i was from the big early early days of of uh kill bill i put together my, you know i'd normally put together my my first schedule i'll just put together as I think, you know, what would be great, as it should be. I don't worry about how many days it is. I just put it together as it should be. And there was, and I put one together for Kill Bill. I think I had it at 125 days, if I remember correctly, 125, 130 days. And I brought it to the uh, to the line producer and the producer, and I was nearly fired right there. What, the, what are you kidding? No, You'd go back, make it. Did you show this to Quentin? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just, this is what I think. This is just my, you know, I just wanted to run it past you guys. No, no, no. Go back, make it 98 days. Go back and make a 98 day schedule. I'm like, okay. So I went back, I squeezed it into the 98 days, you know, did this, this, did that, the other thing. And I brought it back and they're like, okay, now you can show Quentin. I'm like, okay. So I walk across the office and, uh, and, uh, and when I first showed up on my office, you know, cause Quentin writes the title pages. And so there was the big in red and kill Bill. And on my door was kill Bill Clark. <laughs> it was the, no. on the script page sign. I'm like, oh God, this is, this is, and they try, they try, they try as long as they could. And uh, so I walk across the office, I bring it to Quentin. I bring the 98 day schedule to Quentin and he takes the schedule and he, okay. Oh, I like starting out with the uh, Japanese boss. I like that. That was the first thing we Lucy Lou she cuts off the guy's head, uh, mm -hmm. Boss Tanaka. I like that. I like starting with that. That's a good idea. That's, yeah, that's two days. Good for that. Then we go right into the House of Blue Leaves. All right. Well, yeah, the first week looks great. Yeah, first week looks great. Love it. Okay, well, that's the first five days. What about the other 92? Any thoughts on those? No, I've never really done a movie like this. I don't, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really have any thoughts. But the first week is great. I love the first week. Okay, okay. All right, good. I like the first We're compartmentalizing here. <laughs> and so really the toughest part, uh, you know, especially for a guy like me who's, you know, has to be, in, you know, is in charge of the schedule, you know, I'm not sleeping at night because we had to, you know, once we get into the House of Blue Leaves, figure out how we're going to achieve it. And, you know, on normal movies, you try to, you know, in most movies, you try to say, okay, we're going to have a shot that goes this way. So we'll continue shooting this way. We'll turn around and then we'll go, go this way. 
we very quickly within the first day or two realized that that was just going to confuse and frustrate, um, you know, Quentin more than anybody, but really everybody, you know, the, you know, how can you do this fight? We shooting directly. So we had, a, we, you know, he wanted Hong Kong style anyway. And so Bob adjusted, we just went into straight Hong Kong style top light, you know, keep it on the bottom, keep, you know, the bounce on the floor. And we just kept moving. We would turn around different, you know, we would turn around 10 times in a day if we had to, whatever it was. And we were getting 30, 35 shots a day on that movie. But it, look at the amount of shots in that fight. Yeah. A lot of shots in that fight. Yeah. And so that, that fight took a, a lot of chunk of China. And, uh, and that was really just understanding that our, this was going to have to be our process and me being able to keep my job was the, uh, were the, the, the most challenging uh, parts of that process. But Quentin supported me from uh, immediately. You know, I was getting, I was getting heat and Quentin just kind of sat down with me. He's like, look, I know you're, I know you're getting shit on all the time. You know, I know you, people are blaming you for this. I think you're doing a great job and you answer to me and I answer to Harvey Weinstein and that's it. So you cool. keep doing your job with these people, but I've got your back. And that helped me sleep at night. It didn't make it any easier, but I was able to get a little bit more rest at night. And, wow. and uh, but it was hard. Well, I think a perfect segue is to that because he had your back. But at this point, you and Quentin took a break. It wasn't you. It wasn't him. It, it was it was just circumstantial. Now, you guys would work together again. And since, like you mentioned earlier, with Inglorious Bastards in 2009. Now, you mentioned in an interview that this was this major relationship stronger comparing the bond to peas and carrots. Tell us about that a little bit. It, uh, it had to feel really affirming to return and have a sense of respect knowing that you've worked with him before years have went by and now you guys are at it again and it's a mutual respect, respect between you guys it was really kind of a very exciting thing for me uh in particular um you know it was about five years if, if memory serves and you know he's now he's now at the peak of uh of, you know a continued peak of uh of of fame and you know and uh and notoriety so he was also acting in quite a bit of different things, you know, Adam Sandler and, you know, and, uh, and all this stuff. So he was working with a lot of different people as, as in my, you know, in my position from different capacities. And then he also went down, you know, he was, he wanted to try new things. He was thinking of going down to Austin and teaming up with uh, Robert Rodriguez because they're, you know, they're soulmates, you know, the, the, the love of film that those two people have is second to none. And, and the respect that they have for each other and the knowledge that each of them has you know mind-blowing and um and so he wanted to go down there and he used uh he was you know he used a lot most of his crew down there and i was over in, in thailand with sly doing rambo which was a whole nother you know <laughs> yeehaw <laughs> fun because <laughs> sly is wild i, I love the man he's a fun, one of the funniest people i've ever met and we had a great time doing that but i knew what quentin was doing and i, I was i i was concerned that the uh that that might be the end of that. And then I was reaffirmed that that would be the end when, you know, Inglorious Bastards just boom, all of a sudden there was Inglorious Bastards. It was happening and I wasn't a part of it. Uh, it was get, you know, it got up and running very quickly in Berlin and the uh, line producer, uh, a gentleman named Lloyd Phillips had just done 
the Intercontinental, the Clive Owen movie, also in Berlin. And he had done it with uh, somebody whom he had collaborated quite a bit with a uh, great AD, Bruce Moriarty. And, uh, and uh, Lloyd, you know, and, and Lawrence, who I was always in trouble with Lawrence because, you know, from Kill Bill days. And, and Lawrence, you know, I would always give Lawrence my opinion. And that wasn't always what sometimes what people want to hear. You know, sometimes they want to be lied to. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that guy. I'm going to tell you what I think is good, bad, and where we have a problem and where we don't. And uh, that that didn't always, that wasn't, it all changed on Inglorious Bastards. But, you know, earlier on, it was it was a bit of a challenge. And, you know, on Kill Bill, like I told, my job was on the line every day. And that's where it was coming from. It was coming from, you know, their job, or, you know, Bennett Walsh and Lawrence Bender, their job is on the line for Miramax because we're going over. So, you know, it all rolls, it all, and I'm the guy there, you know, to, at the bottom of the hill, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they convinced Quentin, who was just surprised that this whole thing had gotten going and up and running so fast. And he's in Berlin and he hadn't seen me in five years. And, you know, I, I guess he was I don't know if he was thinking about me or not at that time. But they started shooting. They shot their first week. And from what I what I've heard uh, from Quentin and from other people is that. Uh, he wasn't happy. He just was not, you know, he, he wasn't convinced that this was going to be the great film that he had in his mind. He wasn't having a good time and he was struggling. And, and, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, Bruce's Bruce uh, Moriarty's mother was ill. And so Bruce and Quentin, you know, Quentin was like, you know, I really want to call this other guy. You know, and Bruce was like, I really want to go home to my mom, you know, take care of my mother. because she, She's, I don't know if she's going to be there when I get back. So the, those two factors really worked well for each of the players. And I just got a call here and I was actually very upset. I was very sad because I, you know, I had seen uh, my old second AD, Pilar Savone had become Quentin's assistant on Kill Bill. I, I talked him into taking her as an assistant because he didn't want an assistant. I'm like, look, I can't make sure that your underwear is clean, man. You need an assistant. And Pilar wants to be your assistant. She had been my second AD for many years. She wanted to move into other things, uh, didn't want to be an AD. And so I, I asked him to take her as an assistant. And they worked very well together. And she was now the associate producer on Inglorious Bastards. And when I, you know, and on the Facebook page, she had posted a couple of pictures about, we started shooting, you know, and there's Bob on the camera. And, and I was just like, oh, and, uh, and, and so I, I, I remember falling asleep that night. And then the next morning getting a call at six o'clock in the morning and it was Pilar. And I'm like, hello. Pilar, what's going on? Why, why are you calling me? She's like, Quentin needs you. He would like you to come to Berlin. Would you come to Berlin? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll come. Now, really what's interesting about this, you know, like the car accidents, like, you know, Kismet, all of these lucky things. You know, I had mentioned my daughter born in 2001 uh it this is now um 2008 2008 into 2009 and her mother and i had split up and we were in a bit of a custody situation 
Whereas if he had asked me to come in August, I would have had to have said no because I would have wanted to stay in Los Angeles until we had a signed custody agreement from the judge. I was not leaving town and giving up my daughter until that was, you know, gold, until it was set in stone. And that Friday, I got the signed agreement from the judge in the mail, the certified letter that the custody was set. I, you know, I was remaining apart. We were sharing 50-50 custody. Everything was going to be fine. No problem. And it was that Saturday that Pilar called me at six o'clock in the morning. Serendipitous. Uh, yeah. yeah. I couldn't, I, I just, I, I kind of laugh thinking about you on like Facebook the night before and you're drowning in tears and the next morning there's, you get the call and you're like, yeah, 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 I guess I could, uh, I, I guess I could be there. I'm on the next thing smoking, I'm there. <laughs> I actually remember exactly what I said. I answered the phone as I recognized, you know, more digits than, than normal on the, on the, on the telephone. And, uh, and it, it, she goes, Hey Bill, what are you doing? And it's six o'clock in the morning in LA. I'm like, I'm standing in my living room naked because I just got out of bed. What are you doing, Pilar? <laughs> and she goes, Oh, Bill. <laughs> I just want to say, I think that, of course, you made it, it, everything worked out for you, but I'm a father. He's a father as well. We both have daughters. And as much as we love film, it's nothing more than we love being fathers. So every you made that decision every day of the week, twice on Sunday. Yeah. 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 It was, it was never, I mean, as I said, had he called in August when they started prepping, I would have had to have turned him down mm-hmm. as painful as that would have been. But, uh, um, you know, I don't know how, I don't know why he didn't call. Thank goodness. <laughs> and he, he started using, he started using uh, Bruce. And, and when I, and, you know, and then when I arrived in Berlin, uh, he, he explained to me that he was very upset with himself because he felt very relieved and happy when he heard I can come. And he was upset that I, would have any kind of power over him from that from that perspective, which I thought was kind of well, I'm like, I don't get it either, dude. You know, I, I don't completely understand either, but I'm grateful for it. And then he then he was very kind and explained to me that how he had worked with so many different people over the past five years. And, you know, as an actor, as as a director, you know, in commercials and movies and TV shows and alias and and, uh, you know, and, and death proof and, you know, and all of these different people that he had worked with in my position. And he's like, and what I've learned since we've last seen each other is that the AD, there are very good ADs out there and they are great crew chiefs. They really know how to run a crew and, and, and run a set in a, in a great way. But you are the only assistant director that I have ever met. Mm. Whoa. Okay. Well, that that's 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 nice. Thank you for that. I'll I'll take that. I feel and, uh, bad for whoever the AD was in that downtime. So, how many times that person had to hear like, "Yo, Bill Clark got us a sixteen-hour day done in twelve, 12 hours, hours back on Pulp Fiction." What the hell are you doing? <laughs> uh, I I don't I think uh, I think all of it was uh, internalized and maybe not even realized until until uh, he was uh, you know knee deep in in Berlin. But would it be fair to say sometimes he just he didn't if you guys hadn't like we talked about that split for a few years, sometimes you got to experience other things before you really know what you're going to appreciate in someone. And I think that's for what happens well, yeah, when you guys. 
I, 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 I believe that. I mean, I had a, I had, I mean, I had already appreciated him greatly anyway, but I had a bigger appreciation for him when I was back there. And he explained to me too, that it was, it, there was a, because now there, there's, there's an, there's, there's an unspoken trust. There is no chance in any way that this guy is trying to f me over. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to protect himself. He's not, uh, he's not here for any other reason than to help me make this movie. And I believe it, I feel it, and I'm moving forward with it. And that's just the way it is. And I think that's the way he saw it from now until today. And, and hopefully until, uh, until we both are done making movies. That's awesome. I want to take a quick sidebar because when I was looking at your IMDb, I saw that you worked on Big Mama's House. Uh, not Big Mama. Yeah, Big Mama's House, like father, like son. We did Tropic Thunder. Okay. <laughs> we, we did Tropic Thunder on the last, uh, the last episode. We covered Tropic Thunder, and we were talking to Brandon T. Jackson, who, just to put it subtly, is an interesting case now. Uh, just go on his Instagram. You can see for yourself. But we were talking to him about coming on to the show, and... Um, it fell through for uh, personal reasons. He, his uh, the, his wife got COVID and he was dealing with that. So we didn't get a chance to talk to him. But I did a lot of research on him in preparation for the interview. And one of the things that I read was shooting uh, Big Mama's house like father, like son. He, he actually considered himself cursed by God for cross-dressing. And that, that was... He, it's largely credited to his falling out with Hollywood. And I was wondering as the, as the AD on that, uh, on that production, was that discontentment in that role ever apparent at all? No, 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 not, not at all. As far as I'm concerned. And, and I actually uh, hung out with him uh, outside of work uh, on a few occasions and really, really enjoyed his company. He's a very talented young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it was, it's hard, you know, putting on that fat suit and running around and that stuff is hard. And especially, uh, you know, uh, Martin Lawrence had done it a couple of times. So all of our, our, you know, all of our energy was to make sure we get Martin into the fat suit and out of the fat suit as soon as we can, you know, mm-hmm. keep give you Martin, 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 Martin. Okay. Done. You know, okay, great. Go ahead. Get comfortable, you know, cool rooms, all this stuff we had for both of them also. But, you know, Brandon did have to take a back seat to Martin Lawrence and Martin Lawrence's knees because Martin Lawrence was a big star and an incredible, incredible talent. I mean, he really, he's, he's another one of those guys, you know, you're just talking to and he's just a dude, you know, and he's, he's, you know, he's got, you know, like many actors, you know, certain insecurities. He wants to make sure he's prepared. His insecurities are all based on professionalism. You know, he wants to make sure he has the right side the night before so he comes in prepared with the lines and inflection on everything that he's going to do. So you're not going to change the dialogue on him that, that morning, you know, mm-hmm. he will, it, it, it rattles, it rattles. So, and he's prepared, you know, he spends the night before preparing for all of the dialogue and, and you know, he's, he was really, he's always great. I, and once that camera rolls, you know, you, you serious, serious talking about this, this, the camera rolls and, there he goes, and he's right into it. It's really, it's it's always a remarkable thing to see somebody just turn it on like that. It, it's one of the more amazing things for me from in watching actors 
over the years now when you see those people who can do it. You know, a lot of people are method, nothing wrong with that, but stay in, you know, try to stay in the character throughout the day. So I, I, I get the biggest kick out of the people who are, you know, you know, Joe and then, you know, Bob the character, you know, in, 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 a, in a flash. I'm amazed by that. I always love watching it. And uh, so it was, it was a workout for him because it was not comfortable. But, um, I mean, he, he did a really good job and, uh, you know, always did everything we asked. And, and we, uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would still consider him a friend, although I haven't seen him in a long time because this business is bad for friendships. It's hard on <laughs> friendships, you know. <laughs> so you, 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 you develop very tight bonds with people and then you don't see people for 10 years. It's really, it's a strange thing. All right, I have one more quick sidebar before we get back to Quentin Tarantino films. We, uh, you worked on The Goods in 2009, and we just have to say that movie doesn't get nearly as much credit for the hilarious movie that it is. And there's no question here. I just wanted to say great job because that, that movie oh, is fantastic. You. Well, just look at the people involved. I mean, you know, you got uh, Gary Sanchez, all those guys uh, um, are, are incredible. Uh, and hysterical people. Neil Brennan, the director, is just a, a funny, you know, a funny person in general, did all the Dave Chappelle stuff. And then, you know, you look at the cast, yeah. you know, we had There's... Ken Jeong before anybody knew who Ken Jeong was, you know, and we had, you know, all the office guys, you know, and they were all hysterical and, and, um, and Will Ferrell, you know, I, I mean, it was, it was, you know, and of course, Jeremy carrying thing. What I appreciated about it is that there's not one moment that goes unutilized in the movie. There, everything is used like this is a comedy. We're gonna make you laugh every every chance that we get. There's never a moment wasted. There, there was there was nothing that was not supposed to be funny. Everything was always looking or working towards the next joke, and sometimes just the next joke showing up. And that's you know that's Neil. That's that's what Neil does. That's Neil's that's Neil's bag. And um, interesting thing about that, though, we shot that during the writer's strike if in uh, 2008 and 2009, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was a couple of days that it was very difficult to make that funny when you have a bunch of angry writer, writers outside of, this, outside of the dealership yelling and screaming and writers inside of the dealership, you know, who are producing the movie but can't write anything, you know, to respect the union. Yeah. So uh, it was, it was, it was, there was some challenges with that. A batu, we called it. Yeah. All right. Let's get down to the brass tack this year. We're going to talk about Django Unchained. This was shot in 2012 across California, Louisiana with a sprinkle of Wyoming. Could you please tell us about this masterpiece and this production, sir? Well, it was, you know, what a joy. Um, and the challenge, you know, it was it was also a challenge, not only because of the multiple locations that you've mentioned, but the uh, you know the content. You know, it's it's never it's never easy asking 150 people to go out into the field and pick cotton. Uh, you know, with a bunch of other you know fellows riding horses around with shotguns. You know, recreating that type of uh, that emotion, the feeling. First off, recreating the cotton was interesting it was challenging to do it was actually soybeans so the art department put all that cotton on all of those soybeans okay 
and uh and because uh, you, you just can't grow cotton that fast it takes some time <laughs> you know and there's not a lot of not a lot of cotton uh fields in the south anymore mm-hmm. so but we but uh, our production designer michael reva did a lot of research wonderful man uh michael reva and uh and he came up with the uh, idea of placing the cotton on soybean because the soy plant looks very similar to the cotton plant so we did that and um I mean, there was, it was always something. There was, there was challenge after challenge after challenge on that movie. We still managed to have an amazing time. But, you know, we, right from the get-go, you know, we had challenges, you know, right in training, you know, because um, there was a lot of training, you know, to ride these horses uh, like you live on them. It was hard. And, and you know, and Christoph, uh, Christoph Waltz uh, had been studying dressage and, and in his first day of training, you know, got bucked, you know, off a horse. Yeah. And I saw it. it... I, I had a question about that, actually. Did did Jamie Foxx really give him a saddle with a seatbelt as, like, a, a feel-better gift? I, I had not heard that. I don't know. I don't <laughs> okay, know so if that's... Okay, so you can't confirm nor deny. I can't confirm nor deny. Okay, Nor deny. It doesn't seem like a Jamie. You know, Jamie's... Jamie's more respectful than to make that kind of uh, painful joke, you know, cause, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe at the end, you know, maybe afterwards when it was all said and done, but, you know, um, certainly not before recovery or while we were shooting because Christoph had to work very hard and be very patient to heal in, in, in enough time to even get back on the horse. But that really, that uh, a blessing in disguise is, uh, that incident is where the dentist wagon came from. There was no wagon in the mm. original in the original piece. I was uh, mean, you know, it was just it was the day after um, Christoph's injury, and uh, you know, Quentin and I were sitting in his office, you know, and we're you know, he's not going to be you know he, he, the best you know I I believe it was. Uh, you know, we were trying to start shooting in December. You know, I can't recall the specifics. This may have been September, October. And, you know, and for a lot of the riding that needed to be done, you know, both he and Jamie needed, you know, not a couple of days on a horse. They need months on a horse, you know, to, to feel that natural. And, um, you know, so, and Christoph all of a sudden wasn't going to be able to even get on a horse, mm-hmm. you know, until... It turned out to be until after the new year, but we didn't know exactly yet. And so I just was like, you know, you know, this may be stupid. I don't know. You know, I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. You know, what if, you know, he had a wagon, you know, what if, you know, like, you know, like those snake oil guys driving around all the time. And Quentin goes, let me think about that. And, you know, I was, I'm just like, oh, that was a dumb idea. I can't believe I even said that, you know, this hero riding around in a wagon. Oh, God. Oh, well, I said it. You know, what can you do? And, and then, so the next day, Quentin comes in with, you know, a quintaglyphic sketch. You know, he's not, uh, he's not, he's not 
you know, Picasso, or maybe is a little Picasso. He's he's not, you know, he's not Monet. He's not. It's not realistic. You know, it's it's more surreal his images. But he comes in with the surreal image of a dentist wagon with the big tooth on top. And uh, and you know, we call over Michael and and Michael Riva, and you know, he's like, what if we did this? You know, you know, he's a traveling dentist, so he has a chair in the back of the, and then we can put the dynamite in the tooth. What do you guys think? What do you think? And I'm like, that's hysterical. You know, just thinking about that tooth, you know, and there it is. Now that's the first image of the movie. That was, that was not the plan. But, you know, sometimes, as often happens in filmmaking, one of my favorite parts of the whole process is necessity creates invention. And what you invent out of that necessity is often better than what you had originally fantasized about. So this is one of those examples. And I, there's several throughout that I've, you know, throughout my career where you've had to decide, you know, you can't afford it. You don't have time for it. You don't have whatever it is. You don't have, you know, whatever it is. And you have to figure out a solution and even though you don't have all the pieces, so you take the pieces that you do have and you make something different. And sometimes it's better. Not always, you know, sometimes you have to make a sacrifice, but often it's better. And that's, that's really when it's a really exciting process for me. Just hearing that story, I just, I'm thinking about this, the Christopher Reese, that had to be so scary seeing him bucked off a horse like, Christoph. Oh. no, 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 oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Superman, damn yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it had to be so scary seeing that, so I can, I'm just happy that he was okay, I never even know, known that the production was halted to do that, but uh, thankful, thankfully you and your quick thinking, but let me ask you this, That's there's a scene I want to ask about with the horses since you brought it up, the scene at the end with Jamie Foxx and he's making the horse dance, did he really do that? Or because you said he had months to train, or was that someone else where he's prancing on the horse? It's like a little. It's well, like he, a little. He apparently came with his own horse, right? Like he was. That was, he, that was his own horse. Oh, He was well well versed and, in horse. And, okay. And you know our guys, you know our guys, uh, Rusty Henderson and Jeff Dashnaw, they taught him how to do that, and they took the horse. Really, Jamie, you know, wanted to use his horse. He was a little familiar with his horse, but the horse wasn't movie trained. So Jamie allowed Rusty to take the horse, Rusty Henderson to take the horse. And so he and, and Rusty's amazing guys uh, started working with the horse and Jamie a little bit with a different horse. And then they brought the two back together. And, uh, and, and a lot of it was, a lot of it was Jamie's own horse. And I believe that was Jamie's own horse. And yeah, it, it, that was, yeah, I saw it. I saw it live. It, it, it really horse happened. Horse movie training. <laughs> Mr. Ed will never work in this town again. Goodness gracious. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the final shootout of Django Unchained wasn't in the script. That was something where you guys, like, like you said, you, there was a, a problem, and out of that came creativity. Like The problem was we have now done so much in the movie, we need something that tops that for the climax. So it, it get, I mean, and this isn't just like something, let's just... Let's just shoot that. They're oh, talking no, about is... explosions, uh, multiple extras. Valentine's Day Massacre almost very, yeah. So what, uh, I'm interested what goes through that internally for someone like you who's tasked with, okay, this is what we want to do. Uh, let's put it together. What, what happens in your mind before, before you even begin to plan when, when something like that comes up? Uh, weeping. 
we, you know, weeping, uh, concerned about your job, you know, uh, end of career. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it, it, that was, uh, it, it really, it, what really caused it was the barn sequence. You know, the barn sequence was so dramatic and even shooting it was such a drain, even just to shoot the thing. Um, and it was such a, a, a poignant, poignant and powerful thing that uh, what uh, Quentin, you know, was obviously the first to realize that what he had planned for the, for the climax, the end of the movie, all of a sudden wasn't enough mm-hmm. because, you know, now everything is coming down from the barn as opposed to, you know, okay, taking a little dip with the Australians and then crescendoing again. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, because really it was just a little speech on the front porch of the thing as they return from the funeral, he gives them each a gun and asks them to draw and they can't draw any shoots from dead out there. And my biggest concern was the big night light exterior and creating fog and, and all of this stuff, you know, it was Bob's concerns were my biggest concerns about that scene. And, um, and, you know, it was one morning at breakfast after a day or two after we uh, had finished shooting the uh, barn. And I can always tell, you know, you can tell when, when something is on Quentin. He's a very expressive person. You know, he, although he keeps his cards close to his vest, his face often gives away what's on his mind. And I saw just the way he was eating breakfast that, or not eating breakfast, that the breakfast was sitting in front of him and he wasn't eating that, I'm like, okay, something's going on. And I just, hey, dude, what's up? How's it going? I need to talk to you. Um, and he explained that the end of the movie wasn't big enough. He had to change the ending. He thinks he, you know, he, he told me the idea of putting on Calvin candy soup. That was new. You know, that, that, that. You know, so, so I'm, you know, just processing all of these things he's telling, because now I got to get Jamie into a fitting right away so they can reproduce that suit. So it fits him like it fits Leonardo DiCaprio, because they're not the same people. You know, Mm -hmm. they're both incredibly handsome and thin and great in great shape, but they're not the same. So, you know, we got to go, I got to go through that whole process. And I know that suit was the, the piece de la resistance for Sharon Davis, our costume designer. So I'm thinking about that. And then, uh, you know, and it's got to be a shootout. And, all right. And so all the overseers that we had outside have to come back. All right. Some of them aren't even here anymore. I got to start figuring out how to get these guys back, you know. And so I started working with Jimmy Scott's Polar line producer and Pilar and Stacy and Reggie uh, on all and Reggie Hudlin to get, you know, all of these things that we're talking about, which he is now going to go back. You know, we shot what we were shooting that day. Uh, and then over the weekend he would rewrite that sequence and so we would learn you know we were a couple of weeks away from it yeah I mean it wasn't wasn't like tomorrow which had happened before uh on Kill Bill that that happened in Bud's trailer it was a a complete change you know dramatic uh one day but uh this we had a couple of weeks to 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 get our together but even as we were doing it it, you know, it wasn't enough. You know, we, we brought the overseers who we had had back. And then he's like, yeah, and get me 10 others. And so we brought 10 more overseers. But then all of a sudden, you know, we're shooting it. He's like, I need more. 
I need more. So I start dressing up the PAs. You know, I put, I'm an overseer. I'm one of the, I, I put on the cowboy suit. I'm the guy, I'm the first guy down those steps, you know, that's come down with the gun just because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just throwing people in and I'm like, just do what I do. Just do what I do. You know, we're, we're trying to get it done. Just follow me. Just do what I do. And then, you know, when I put the gun down, you put the gun down. When I put the gun up, you put the gun up. And when I walk forward, you walk forward. And like, okay, you know, because everybody's nervous. They're not trying to be. <laughs> they were... I didn't sign up for this. This <laughs> is some extra like what the... We shot, you know, we shot, uh, I know we shot my, uh, my TPA, Miguel. We shot him two, three times. You know, we're just shooting people. We're just picking people to shoot, you know, just anybody we can to run in the building and then, you know, re- redoing as many of the stunt guys as we can, Chinese style, because we learned it in Kill on Kill Bill. I mean, we killed all those crazy 88 five times over. I think the one we killed the most was Elvis. We killed him five times. Was the uh, the uh, fight uh, one of the fight team we he called Elvis? Name was Elvis, and we shaved his head. You know, he, he had so for the first half of the scene, he has hair like Elvis, and by the end of the scene, his head is shaved because he's somebody else. Because we had to kill him again, you know. And that's <laughs> crazy forty two, yeah, forty four, crazy yeah. forty four. <laughs> and so we took that model to the final shootout of uh, you know when he's shooting everybody before he gets trapped like a rat in, in the hallway where we just keep bringing people in, bring as many people in. And then we needed more people again for when he comes out with his hands up. And that's where I was leading the posse down the steps with a nice big hat, which I always love. Nothing makes my job easier than being on both sides. That is that is amazing. One of the most talked about scenes that people, they like it, but they don't really go into to know what really happened is the dinner scene at the table when, of course, uh, Samuel Jackson character Steven figures out that he want that girl. He, they ain't here for nobody. They want that girl. During that scene, Leonardo DiCaprio, he becomes so upset. And, you know, I, from what we've interviewed and read, he slammed his head, hand on that table so many times that the, the cup eventually moved to under his hand. And one night during production, he actually cut himself. Were you there? Could you tell us about that? Was there and him staying in character was the biggest thing that we were impressed by. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I was there. I was about five feet from him. And um, and and saw exactly what he did, you know, what had happened. It was just a little cordial glass, you know, one of those little small glasses that you put your port or your sherry mm-hmm. in and they, they were all there. And, and he, you know, goes through the, the speech and you will, and he bangs and he puts his hand right on the glass. And I'm like, <gasps> cause I saw it, you know, I saw the hand go right down on the glass and I saw the glass break. And I'm like, Oh, too many crickets. And he kept his hand down there and he just kept acting. And then he brought it up. <laughs> there he is bleeding and cut. And then he goes, I think I cut my hand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like medic, 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 Eric, oh, medic. And, uh, and yeah, he, he, he did. And he continued right through. I mean, he's, I knew from I, I the first time I had worked with Leo was on on Django Unchained and uh, and the first shot that we did with him was the introduction of his character. You know, we're on the back of his head is the Mandingos are fighting by the fireplace and the, mm. the, the French. Uh, yeah. And it's a, it's a it's a seventy two seventy zoom, a big ass zoom, which only Bob can really do effectively and. 
perfectly and just about every every time i mean I don't even want to get into how amazing Bob Richardson is as, you know, not only a, a, a cinematographer, but as an operator, he's the best mm -hmm. operator I've ever seen. There's, you know, it's, he's unbelievable. It's, it's really mind blowing. And uh, so we're doing that big snap zoom in and, you know, Leo comes walking over to Bob and they had known each other from Avatar and all, you know, and all the things, you know, Scorsese and all that stuff. And he goes, hey, Bob, um, what do you what is what is you zooming to and from here? And I, it was it was it, I I want to say I don't know I'd be making it up, but it was it was a long you know it was a quite a big snap, big wide whole room into a you know a, not quite a Sergio almost a Sergio Leone, but you know to here. And um, and Leo just kind of shook his head, okay, all right, and he's got that long cigarette holder and all that jazz, and the first take. And, well, come on in. We got a good bit of fun going on here. And boom, snap in. And, you know, he held the sig. The, the, you can see, if you look again, the, uh, the, the end of the cigarette holder is a little bit uncomfortably close to his face because somehow he just knew where the end of the frame would be for the end of the cigarette. And he wanted to keep the shots ruined if the cigarette holder doesn't make the frame. And he knows it. And he puts it in exactly the right purpose on take one. You know, it was, and I was, and I'm like, okay, check the gate. You know, I made a joke. I remember specifically, check the gate. We're moving on from that one because it was perfect. The first take of the first shot with Leonardo DiCaprio was perfect and not by accident. It wasn't a fluke. You know, he knew what he was doing. Bob knew what he was doing. You know, Quentin designed the shot and it was, it was magic. And, and that's just the way Leo is. I mean, Leo is really one of the most, certainly the most prepared actor. Uh, you know, really, really digs deep and takes deep bite. That's why he struggled with the Calvin character, Calvin Candy character, because he was such a bad man. I was going to ask you about that because that's a perfect segue. Um, of course, DiCaprio was uneasy about the gratuitous racism in the char his character displays until it's written that Samuel Jackson pulled him aside. And uh, basically, Quentin Tarantino said that Calvin J. Candy is the only character he has ever created who he truly despises. I mean, like truly, truly despises. What was the what was the atmosphere atmosphere like on set? You mentioned earlier having these having the people there, you know, everyone dress up and this, that, and ever recreating cotton and all this thing. What was was it ever tense? And you as an as an AD, did you ever? I'm sorry, as an assistant director, you're not an AD. Tarantino told you that. What 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 were you tasked with? Were you able to keep everyone positive? Were there days where it was harder than others? What was it like? Yeah, there there certainly were days that were hard. I remember the one day where they first arrive at uh, at uh, at uh, Don Johnson's house. You know that that drive through the field uh, was a very uncomfortable day because we were not. You know the weather wasn't cooperating. Um, we're in a field with you know all of all of these uh, background specialists. You know, dressed as slaves, behaving as slaves, and that's just you know. And, and the overseers behaving like overseers. And that's just hard to watch. You know, it's hard to watch in the movie. But, you know, when you're standing there on the ground and you're at, you know, and I got to ask, you know, honey, we, we, can you move to the next cotton bush over, please, and pick that cotton? You know, I mean, it's... Right. So, we, so we went to, you know, we went to great lengths to... Uh, I, I know I specifically did. I know the production specifically did. Um, to constantly try to remind everybody who was there how grateful we were for them being there 
you know that and, and the Greenville scene was also very painful to shoot you know the the, the people with the in the I mean to see that stuff and this is none of it was fake right you know yeah. it's not like we're making this shit up you know this, right. this is real stuff that you know Riva and his and his his team had had researched and 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 we had to put real people into those circumstances and it was not comfortable and it was not fun and um and fortunately you know all these people this was in new orleans at that time were really really happy to be there understood seemed to understand what we were trying to recreate and were appreciative to a certain extent for themselves to actually be here you know mm -hmm. their parents and their parents and their parents lived this Right. And I am here because of it. Yeah, I am a, I am a powerful person, and we I remind I would do my best to remind them, and then of course invite them to the party. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta come and to yeah. the party. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you know, the yeah. So because we're still every Friday, you know, Friday nights, it's still an important job. What where are we going in New Orleans? It's not as challenging as it was. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was still it still was an important part. And just to piggyback off what you, what you just said here is the challenges. I think you guys also had another challenge because me and him talked about this last night, which was I've never once in my life laughed at anything racism related. But for some reason, you guys got a chuckle out of me when Jonah Hill came out of that mask. And then the whole there, everyone's there arguing about what well, your wife made him. She's not going to do this anymore. The one guy. I'm like, wait a minute. This is the nicest mob I've ever seen in my life. It, it was funny. I chuckled. I was like, OK, they got me. That was excellent. So great job to you guys on that. Yeah, that you know that was that was all Quentin. Uh, you know, obviously that's Quentin's writing. Quentin's in the scene. You, you, he's got he's one of the guys. He he never takes the bag off his head, but he's on the horse and he's and you know what if you know we go next time we go full regalia. You know that that. that. <laughs> it's sad how he's making fun of them. <laughs> it's really it, that's that's the that's. That's what makes that scene work. Obviously, it's very well written. Quentin can write comedy just as well as he can write drama. The guy is is it has a gift, right. and um, and and you know the fact that we're making fun of these ass backwards people, right, gives it a little light. You know, it gives yeah. it a little light. And um, it, I'm really excited that it made the movie. The first version that I had saw. It didn't make it. It wasn't. It wasn't in in that cut. And uh, Quentin had showed me and Bobby invited me over to the to the edit. Me and Bob over to the editing room together. And uh, Bob and I sat in you know office chairs and watched it on a big TV. And we both missed it. And he's like, "Yeah, you noticed. Yeah, of course we noticed. You know, we noticed everything that's not in the movie. <laughs> and uh, but this this we you know we really missed. You know, and I remember standing out in the driveway and. You know, and just kind of throwing ideas and, and, you know, before this and that, you know, and and then next time I saw it, Quentin had the brilliant idea of the, the flashback and all of that. And, and it really it was a in a perfect spot in the film to give. Right. Yeah. Some, some tension relief. Yes. Yes. What's your favorite memory from that production? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's so many good memories and so many challenging memories. But, uh, you know, there, there's one thing that uh, I kind of love. It's, it's kind of a personal story. It, it doesn't really, 
reflect it reflects in the film only in the uh, in the sense that um, the montage with all of the the way you set the table and how specific that was. Now we had uh, I had brought a PA oddly enough who I had worked with on the Big Mama's House movie, Freddie Turner, who's now a, a, a photographer and an AD, a great AD on in his own right. But uh, when we were shooting in December in Lone Pine, the opening scene, you know, with the, the I'm looking for Django. You're the one. You're the one I'm looking for. Yeah. You know, we were getting towards the end. That was very challenging to shoot. It was cold, you know, and on top of it, we're misting. You know, we, we, it's, we, it's below 32 degrees. And because we want the breath, we're, we had built misters in the forest, hidden in the trees. So water would be constantly to create the moisture. <clears throat> so there would be more breath to see in the coldness. So it was really uncomfortable. Yeah. And, uh, and we're only, that's because, you know, the shot through the, through the uh, uh, icicles. Yes. That, it, that, was an, that wasn't on our agenda. The misters created that ice and Bob and I walked over and we're like, look at this. This is wild and we brought Quentin over and Quentin like yeah we gotta shoot that, gotta shoot that. <laughs> 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 but that was that was only created because of the misters we had put in the trees had the water had come together and started to drip off the leaves and would freeze and so it was it was a really challenging thing uh out there in Lone Pine it was uncomfortable you know all the you know Jamie's out there and the rest of the guys Sammy and all the other you know the the other guys that we had uh um, uh, behaving as slaves in that chain gang uh, were, you know, topless. You know, they're, you know, they're, they were, they were uncomfortable. They didn't just act uncomfortable. They were uncomfortable. And my main man, Freddie, uh, had run to make a sandwich for one of the guys and inadvertently had ruined one of the shots, you know, just somebody had walked you know, walked into the shot and that shot and quentin was very upset because we're very you know, very it's like four o'clock in the morning we're almost done we're just trying you know we're, we don't want to come you know we're not coming back another day it was it was a stressful moment in time and quentin was like i don't care a shit who it is I, I want him fired i want whomever you know i, I don't give a shit. I don't, that's what I you know we got to get out of here he was very upset and uh and I, you know, I went and talked to, you know, I went, uh, you know, I put on a bit of a show largely for Quentin to, you know, feign uh, how upset I was. I was upset, but I know who Freddie is. I'm not, and I don't want to fire him. I'm going to find a way to not fire him. And, uh, and, you know, Freddie had a bit of, you know, he was really worried. He was very upset. He had a very difficult night that night. And the next day we come in and I'm like, Freddie, you stay at base camp today. And, uh, and Quentin asked me, did, do you know, did you find out who that was? I'm like, yeah, I found out. Did you fire him? I said, no, I, I didn't fire him. Why not? I'm like, well, Quentin, you know, I, I just really don't think it's the right thing. You know, I, I just, uh, I don't, you know, he, he had a moment. Uh, it was a mistake. And granted, he made a mistake. But uh, he's here for all of the right reasons. And he's the sweetest guy on the planet. You know, he's the size of a mountain, but he's, you know, but as hard as, as soft as, as, a, 
as a teddy bear. Um, it's just, I, I just think it's the wrong decision. And I did not, I did not do what you asked, mom. I apologize. And, uh, and he's like, okay, okay. You know, he begrudgingly agreed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, months later, we're shooting the, uh, you know, we're about to get ready for the, um, the setting of the table, which was a very important piece that, you know, the musical interlude, the, again, a breath, but also the meticulousness with which these, the people who worked in the house had to adhere by was an important message for the stupidity of the whole situation. You know, this is all dumb. Everything about this is dumb. Not only are the Mandingo fighting dumb, not only are the guys, you know, the, the, the guys, you know, getting a beer for winning the fight and not dying is dumb. You know, the, the people having to set the table for these idiots, you know, these candy family idiots in such a meticulous way is also dumb. But we had taken, you know, we kind of handpick the, the, those people who would be working inside of the house for that sequence. One of them, Belinda Aquino, came back. She was an extra on Django Unchained and Quentin appreciated her work so much on that. She, he brought her back. She was holding the jelly beans in The Hate Plate. And, uh, and I had charged Freddie with finding the right person, you know, getting the, so we, we hired a specialist, you know, to teach these four or five uh, specific people and I charged Freddie with making sure that they trained and studied how to do this like they had done it every day for their whole lives since they were small children. Mm-hmm. And, and Quentin was so, he was kind of nervous about it because, you know, it's just a weird thing. You know, it's a weird way to set a table in general and that it's so specific and so precise. And also, plus then you add the element of the camera to just move that precise so it looks a little bit even more precise it was and you know these are extras ultimately you know these are background specialists who again have to step up and you know under hot lights with you know quentin tarantino staring at them with, you know with his big cherokee eyes you know and i charged freddie with making sure that these people would be ready and quentin was so pleased with their work that he brought freddie you know, at the end of the scene, he was great. And he asked the crew to give Freddie a big round of applause for, uh, for the work he had done with these people in order to prepare that. And for me, it was a bit of a vindication for disregarding something that he had asked me to do. And for Freddie, it was, you know, he was on, he was now where he was on the verge of tears and fear in December, in March, he's, he's king of the world. And, uh, and that's, that's one of my, uh, my favorite memories, and especially because of the content, you know, taking, yeah. I, I took Teddy, I took Freddie from Atlanta to Los Angeles to work on this movie because he was, you know, the, these are his parents. These are his, this is his family. You know, mm-hmm. these are his, his genealogy that had to suffer and endure this. And, uh, he had done such a great job on, uh, on uh, Big Mama's house, I, I wanted to reward him with this opportunity, and uh, and he deserved it. And then he to get the ovation from you know most importantly Quentin, but certainly the whole crew 
for him and the people that he had worked so hard to train over the week to be so perfect. And we did it very quickly. And it was exactly what Quentin had wanted. And Freddie was a success and became uh, all of a sudden one of the MVPs of, of the picture was, uh, was a, a very proud moment for me. And he continues to make me proud. It's always nice when you take a risk and especially like a risk that involves a selfless act like that of pretty much disregarding what the boss is saying to save somebody's job. And then it ends up paying off like that big time where it worked out. I said, yeah, definitely. That's an amazing story. Yeah, that's just kind of what comes to mind. There's, there's tons of things that were really remarkable about the whole movie. You know, I mean, there was so many great moments. I mean, Fox is uh, Jamie Fox is God. I hate that guy. I mean, he can do anything. I mean, he can do anything, anything at all. I mean, it's, it's you know, he's a musician. I, I'll never forget the time when uh, 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 Thousand Corpses, you know, I got a Thousand Corpses, a Thousand Coffins. Uh, I can, what's the name of the artist? Like, it's escaped. Rick Ross was uh, visiting the set, was visiting the set. And... Um, and he and Jamie go back to the trailer and they come back on written on a little, little, you know, the back of sides. And he's like, Hey, 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 hey Clinton, will you listen to this? Uh, me and Rick, we're just working on this and, and we want to know what you think. And there it was, I got a thousand black corpses for a thousand black. And, uh, and, you know, Rick Ross just recites it to Quentin I'm lucky enough to be there. And he and Jamie had just scribbled it out together in the trailer 10 minutes before. It's like, geez, is there anything you can't do? Is there anything? Anything? Oh my God. I got heart surgery tonight. We got to get out of here early, guys. <laughs> Jamie Talented Fox. Okay. So in 2014 and 2015, you worked on The Hateful Eight. This was, the, this was a four-month shoot and for a film with an extended version running at a uh, runtime of over three and a half hours. What is your process when creating a schedule for a film? Because we've talked about this with us several times a day. Sometimes you need to get it down. Sometimes you make 109 pages. They only want to see the first five. So let me ask you this. When you're getting this thing down what's your process well that was that had to be very fluid um because you don't really know what you're going to get day to day you know when we were shooting in telluride colorado a beautiful beautiful place if you ever have a chance to go do it's amazing um but you know we we needed snow you know and we're not going to make all the snow there's no better snow you know nobody makes better snow than the big man upstairs so that's the snow we really wanted so i was preparing uh three call sheets a day i would have a snow call sheet i would have an overcast call sheet and i would have a sun call sheet preparation so you know so we we, you know so because you can predict the weather kind of you know it's mountains Sometimes it just makes a left turn, you know, it's going to snow tomorrow. Oh my God, what a beautiful day. You know, so, you know, so if, uh, if it was snowing, we're going to shoot, you know, outside with the stagecoach and the stunt guys, you know, getting, getting the stagecoach through wherever we had to go through all of the different places that we had. And that location had to be prepared. If it's overcast, we're going to go inside the stagecoach and we'll do, you know, make our fake snow as best as we can to enhance the overcast and create the snow we'll cover the hangman we'll cover sam and we'll cover jennifer inside of the of the thing 
Uh, if it's sunny, we're going to block the sun and we're going to shoot inside of the haberdashery. So, you know, to schedule that, you know, you kind of just put it together, but you have plan A, plan B, and plan C. And you wake up, you know, I, I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning and the first thing I would do is go look at the sky. And, you know, and then I drive to set, which was always a joy because it's, again, such a gorgeous place. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't too far from where we were. And I would show up and say, we're going to go with plan B. We're going to go with plan A. Have you seen Bob? <laughs> Make sure I'm making the <laughs> <laughs> and And that would be what it was on a daily basis. It gets, you know, call Sam because, you know, we, we told Sam, well, we'll notify him, you know. If because if we're inside the haberdashery, he's at, at this point, he's out at the barn, he's not in this scene, so he's not sure if he needs to come in. But we're going into the stagecoach, so call him up, get saying, you yeah. know. So it was always, it was, it was like juggling five balls at, at one time, um, every day while we were in Telluride. And then when we get back to, you know, then we built it on a stage, the interior of the haberdashery again, which none of the day stuff was on the stage, only at night. And, uh, and in order to, uh, you know, it was, that was even more uncomfortable because, you know, we brought in the air conditioned guys, you know, it's a hundred degrees in Los Angeles and the, you know, in June and we're air conditioning the set. I'm trying to get it to as close to 32 degrees as I can. You know, I, I would come in in the morning, it would be 40 and we're running the misters again to try to get that breath you know, mm-hmm. to sell that we're in the blizzard, you know, because we're making a blizzard. This, the, you know, again, it's the hateful eight. This is another story where there's really not any redeeming characters, you know, yeah. that all the redeeming characters yeah, are killed off. Yeah, they're all killed <laughs> off. They're all killed off. And the, but the, the character that wins is the storm. So that had to be, you know, that had to be felt. You had to feel that storm because the the only thing that survives is the storm. Yeah. So we think we don't know completely. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe Walton Sam. Maybe I don't think so. I don't know. Conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, your most recent collaboration with uh, Quentin Tarantino was 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's I, I it's one of my favorite Quentin Tarantino films, and I remember sitting in the theater watching the ending. Um, the audience was uh, they were all over the place as far as how it made them feel, but it was just this collective energy in the theater, like it was all building to this moment in the house with where uh, everything takes place with the the ex- all of a sudden the extreme violence comes out. And um, you're reminded that you're watching a Quentin Tarantino film. And to me, that that movie felt like a return to, like, as we get older, sometimes we find ourselves going back home, returning to our roots. And that felt like a returning to the roots for me as far as Quentin Tarantino goes. It kind of had the same feel as Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Reservoir Dogs, like his original trilogy. Was there, do you know if there was like a conscious, conscious effort? during the making of that movie to go back to that kind of style? I, I, uh, Quentin has actually said point blank that no, it wasn't a conscious effort. You know, that was not 
what his thinking was. It just kind of happened in the writing process. Uh, I mean, that's what I, you know, the first time I had read the script um, up at his house, that's, that's what I told him. He's like, well, what do you think? You know, it's one of the more intimidating things you, you can ever experience when you go up to Quentin Tarantino's house to read the script because he's kind of just watching you read the script you know and and it's and it's you know they're they're not you know they're not like you know 60 pages of of light material it's it's 160 pages of dense dripping dramatic powerful funny different things and uh you know and he's really he's really kind of cute about he's like can't make a drink you can't make a drink here you know he pours it he kind of goes away and you see him walking around in the kitchen kind of peeks out and I'm reading. I'm reading. Go away. <laughs> God damn it. Go away. You know, it's hard. I'm not that great of a reader. English wasn't my strong suit anyway. You know, I'm not that good with it anyway. You know, <laughs> when you're staring at me, I get even worse. I feel like I'm at the SATs all of a sudden. And I did not do well on the SATs. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, so it's, it, it was a, uh, it's always, it's always, it's always a fun part of it. But uh, I, I had read it and I, and, what I what I said to him you know, is he has you know, made an incredible career out of uh, you know stealing things from all you know the greatest filmmakers of all time throughout history, throughout the past hundred years of cinema, and putting it into a stew that he then makes Quentin stew. It's his, it's his own. It becomes his own. But you know, there's no doubt that. You know, there's things that have been taken directly from other films and put all together into the the uh, the the Quentin of it all. But in reading this, what I saw was he had taken pieces from all of his different work and put it into his own stew. Mm -hmm. So it was a triple Quentin stew, which refried quentin twice yeah. twice baked quentin yeah. yeah that's a perfect way of putting it. it it did it felt like it felt like a trip down memory lane but none of it felt recycled it, it felt it, yeah. it felt like fresh takes on himself that's a perfect way of putting it and your your daughter actually appeared in that movie right yeah my daughter was uh we're we're all very proud that she's a member of the manson family <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Hey. <laughs> yeah, she uh, she played a happy Cappy Capistrano, one of the uh, Manson girls up in the house watching television uh, at the beginning. And comes out and you know gives. I mean, I felt bad for Brad because I've seen that stink eye, and uh, <laughs> and it, it's powerful. It's powerful. Yeah. She gave Brad a very nice stink eye, and then uh, yelled and screamed at him, at him, and you know and. And it was great. It was fun. She had a great time. She loved missing school. You know, she's she's looking to she's an actress in her own right. You know, she went to performing arts high school and loved the whole process. And now is studying literature to get a better understanding of storytelling. And uh, so it was a really it was a really fun time. It was fun to have her uh, on the set, um, you know, but I actually didn't really deal with her much on the set unless she needed money. Uh, <laughs> for something, uh, you know, to cause trouble over at Checkpoint Charlie. You know, everybody hangs out at Checkpoint Charlie where you leave your cell phone because no cell phones were allowed on set. Mm-hmm. But that was really a thrill. And that was all Quentin's idea, too. I originally said, I don't think that's a very good idea. 
you know, I'm more concerned about her graduating high school. I'm not sure her taking two weeks off from school is going to help her performance because it wasn't that great last year. And Quentin's, Quentin's like, are you crazy? She wants to be an actress, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what better first gig is this? And I'm like, I know, but she's not going to be anything unless she graduates high school, for God's sake. And I'm, worried, I'm her father. I'm worried about that. And he's like, dude. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll invite her in. You ask her. And if she wants to do it, she has to do all the work. She has to get with the headmaster. She's got to work it all out. She's got to work it out. You have to ask her. She's got to work it out. And that and that's exactly what happened. Called her in. He sat her down, told her what he'd like her to do. She was, I didn't tell her anything. She was over the moon, excited, and went back and, uh, you know, discussed it with the uh, powers that be at, at, at school, Idlewild Arts in, uh, in Idlewild there. And they were very hospitable to the whole idea. And, uh, you know, they gave her her homework and she stayed on it. She did a good job. And I think she was really, really, really quite good in, uh, in that first little role. And, and it, cool, it, as a, cool as a cucumber. I mean, I was more nervous than she was. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that had to be really cool to see that. that and to, be, to play a part in that stepping stone to her dream becoming a reality. Has she graduated? Yeah, she's graduated now, and now she's back here home. Fortunately, she said, you know, rather than going off to college, uh, which I was fully expecting, you know, I had trying to save and all this jazz, thinking she's going to go somewhere, you know, Elon, DePaul, somewhere, you know. And uh, she's like, Dad, I, I live in Los Angeles. You know, I got it. Yeah, I applied to these schools. Yeah, I got in. But why are we going to pay $50,000 a year to leave Los Angeles to become an actor? Yeah, right. I, I would I would rather stay here. You know, I'll go to the community college for two years. Maybe I get a gig and I, you know, and and I can go back to college after the gig and or may, you know, but I'll go to the community college here for two years. And then I, there's a great transfer program to UCLA. Nothing wrong with graduating from UCLA. I'll study literature. So I understand storytelling and we'll move forward from there. I'd prefer to be in Los Angeles and try to work. And that was she was full you know, really hitting it hard. And then of course, you know, we had uh, uh, COVID, you know, COVID-19 showed up and kind of put the brakes on anything. But, you know, on the bright side, she was already here. So she didn't have to go remote learn at NYU for, you know, $70,000 to be yeah. looking yeah. at a computer in her bedroom. She's, she's here. And it's, it's and of course, I'm, I'm happy to have her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we got we got two more questions left before uh, three technically with the party words, but I, we kind of ask everybody for advice for filmmakers, and you've been at the epicenter of so many productions over over three decades working. Um, you're seeing it all happen. So what is your best advice for somebody that's an aspiring filmmaker? Well, it's quite different. Uh, the advice from 1991 to 2021, I, I would say, is, is quite different. You know, I mean, now everybody has a phone. You know, they have the camera. They're ready to go. In 1991, getting a camera was, a, was an effort. You had to figure mm -hmm. out how to get the camera. So, yeah. you know, my advice, if you want to be a filmmaker, is make a film. You know, just mm -hmm. make a film. Get your creative friends together. 
you know, put together a story. It doesn't have to be long. You know, you're just trying to get, get the ball rolling. It's not even about how good it is. It's about getting the feel of making these decisions, understanding the editing, understanding score, understanding tone, understanding pace, you know, do it. There's no better way to learn anything than to do it. I mean, that's what I wound up doing because I didn't study film. I was a history major for goodness sakes in college. You know, I graduated with a history degree and then I went straight into finance. And the only reason I studied history because I thought I'd be going into finance and this was my last chance to study history. <laughs> and I loved history. So I studied history. And then I, sure enough, I pounded the pavement and got a job at one of the top firms on Wall Street, in, you know, in Boston and busted my ass there to, on the job and learned very quickly and became a, you know, a moderately successful broker at a very young age and then stopped and then came out to California. And then I didn't, you know, like I said, when I showed up to the set on Pulp Fiction, I didn't know who Quentin Tarantino was, you know, Reservoir Dogs was there, but this was new to me. You know, I didn't know. I didn't know, you know, these, I knew De Niro, you know, but <laughs> wow, I'm is, breathing. So I knew De Niro, but you know, the way I learned was being, and then there's a certain amount of innate, you know, I mean, yeah, I did, even from the first movie set that I was on, you know, there's got people who had PA'd for, for a while. And they're like, oh my God, we're not, nobody's telling us which direction the shot is. I'm like, well, isn't that the camera? Isn't it pointing that way? So wouldn't the shot be looking that way? Maybe we should lock up over there. Yeah, there's a certain <laughs> common sense to be applied. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So there's just some things that were easy, but most of everything I just learned by doing it and failing sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's okay. I love failing. I love it. Successful because, thing. Yeah, the success. Yeah. Of, as long as you're open to your, I guess, being critical of yourself to be able to learn from mistakes, that's the best way to learn something, I think, is to, is to lick your wounds and try again. Well, in, in, all of, in those years when I was a stockbroker, you know, we went through the training program and we had all these sales seminars. And one of the most important things that I ever learned in, 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 any, in that whole time was uh, in one of the sales seminars, a guy said to me, you're going to get said to the to the group of us. You're going to get hung up on. You know, you're going you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. You're going to fail, and that is great because every time you don't succeed, you are one step closer to the person who really needs you. Mm -hmm. And I I I've held on to that, and I believe that. You know, okay, all right, so that's done, and now I'm moving on to what the end goal is. I'm one step closer. I just got closer. So what the end goal is. Yeah. So do you have anything else in the works that you'd like the audience to know about? And where can people find you at to follow your work? Uh, well, you know, I'm, uh, I guess I'm, uh, I think I'm on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm William Clark, William Paul Clark. I'm out there. <laughs> I think I'm pretty easy to find. I don't, I certainly don't hide. We and, found you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sought you out. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, no, I'm uh, next week. I'm I'm going back to Atlanta, one of my favorite towns, to work in a great great film community down there to uh, to do work with Jamie again, Jamie Fox, and then work with Fox again on a on a picture called Day Shift. JJ Perry is directing a renowned action specialist who's making his first foray into the director's chair, okay. and I'm um, I'm I'm really excited about that. A dark action comedy, you know. Uh, mm -hmm vampire hunter fun 
thing that will be really joy and a challenge. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. And that'll be great. All right. Well, um, again, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. And before we let you go, is there any parting words that you want to leave the audience with? Be fearless. Be fearless. Young filmmakers, we need you because film is never going anywhere. And one of you is the next Quentin Tarantino, the next Scorsese, the next, you know, Ron Shelton, you know, whomever, you know, that, the, that person, you might be the next person who inspires the person that's coming after you. So be fearless. That's an awesome outlet. Awesome. Mr. Clark, it was such a pleasure speaking with you today. And again, I will always tell people that you're the man that made some of my, my favorite, one of my favorite films ever happen with Jackie Brown. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Fan service. Thank pleasure you so much. <laughs> pleasure is all mine. Thank you, guys. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for finding me. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good night. Yes, sir. Thank okay. You. Thank you. When you subscribe, it'll last longer.